right, well, good morning. It's uh, great to have you all here together at the Medina East Campus. How are we doing today, this week? Everyone doing good? All right, good. Glad to hear it. It's hard to have a bad week after that Browns game this past week. How about that? How about that? That was pretty awesome. And uh, man, it's great to have you guys here at uh, the Medina East Campus this Sunday morning. Like Clark said, I just uh, want to reiterate something he mentioned a moment ago, and that is that if you are a guest with us here today, so if it's your first time at Grace, we do just want to really kind of say a very special welcome to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being our guest. We hope you feel welcome because you are welcome, and uh, we're really, really glad you would spend your time and be with us here uh, together today. I hope uh, that if you get a chance today, uh, please stick around for a while. Don't feel the need to, to jet out too quick if you don't have to. I'd love to meet someone new. I would love to meet you personally, hear more about your story, and uh, that'd be an awesome thing. So my name's Tony. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Grace. And if you are just kind of jumping in with us, you're actually catching us in the fourth week of a conversation that we've been in that we've been calling Uncomfortable. So right now we're in the sermon series, uh, several talks. Uh, basically, we're talking about this idea of being uncomfortable. And if you are just joining us, what we're doing is we're actually talking through a very important statement. Uh, this is a statement that we've been looking at for the past several weeks, and I'll just show it to you again as a way of kind of recapping. It's this statement right here. And so we've been saying, man, this is a really important statement. It is this. It's that when the people of God become uncomfortable for the things of God, it unleashes the power of God, and we join the unstoppable movement of God. So that is the statement that we've been unpacking together over the course of the weeks that we've uh, been in this series, that when the people of God become uncomfortable for the things of God, uh, that it unleashes the power of God, and we get to jump in and be part of this unstoppable movement of God. So that's what we've been kind of processing through. And here, here's why we said this statement is so important. We said the statement is so important because it, it reflects a couple of things. First off, we said this actually reflects a pattern that we see all throughout the Bible, that when you look through the pages of the Bible, what you will find is that this statement is essentially what you see with the people of God. That when God's people, those who follow God, those who are submitted to Christ, when they make themselves uncomfortable, purposefully and willingly set themselves outside of their comfort zone for the things that matter to God. We said that it does this amazing thing where it unleashes God's power. It unleashes God's power in their life. It unleashes God's power in the world that they live in. And they actually get to be part of this movement that God is creating in the world. And so we said this is all throughout the Bible. You see this. When people step out in faith, when they step out outside of their comfort zone for the things that matter to God, it has a tremendous effect in their life and it has a tremendous effect in the world. So because of that, we said this is a pattern we see in Scripture, but we said this is also, we believe, we believe this is an invitation it is an invitation to every single one of us that if we willingly and purposefully begin to make ourselves uncomfortable for the things of God, that we step out of our comfort zones for the things that matter to God, that that will actually unleash power, uh, a God's power for your growth and for the growth of others. And we get to be part of this amazing thing that God is doing in the world. So when the people of God make themselves uncomfortable for the things of God, it unleashes the power of God and we join the unstoppable movement of God. So what we've been doing in this series then is we've really been talking about this first part of this, this statement. Uh, we've been saying, what does it mean to be uncomfortable for the things of God? What is that, like practically speaking, how does a person do that, right? And, uh, and what does it mean to make yourself uncomfortable for the things of God? So each week we've actually been looking at 
a different aspect of what does it mean to make ourselves uncomfortable for the things of God. Um, and so I would encourage you, by the way, this is the fourth week in this series. If you missed the previous talks the past few weeks, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those. I think that would be to your advantage to catch up on it. Uh, but today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about yet another aspect of what it means for the people of God to be uncomfortable for the things of God. And today the title of our conversation is this. We're going to be talking about un an uncomfortable building. Uh, uncomfortable building. Now, what in the world do we mean by this, right? What we're going to talk about is that part of what it means for the people of God to be uncomfortable for the things of God, it means that we are to embrace and that we are to identify ourselves with this idea of the uncomfortable building. We're embracing our identity for those of us who follow Jesus. And I know that not everyone here today maybe follows Jesus. Some of you might still be investigating the whole Jesus thing. But for those of us who follow Christ, we're going to be talking about the importance of embracing our identity uh, as an uncomfortable building. And, and some of you are like, now what is that? What are you even talking about when you say that? Well, let me, let me show you what I mean. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you grab it with me, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. So Ephesians 2 is the passage that we're going to look at together uh, for the rest of our time here today. So Ephesians chapter 2, grab your Bibles and go ahead and get there. And then let me just say too that if you didn't bring your own Bible or if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can use one of ours, page 815 in those black Bibles that we have laid in front of you. You can grab that. And then let me just also say that if you're a guest and you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would actually love for you to take one of ours. Uh, we think it's so important that you have your own physical copy of the Bible. And so if you need one, you could just take one, write your name in it and take it home. And we'd love for you to do that. So Ephesians 2, uh, go ahead and find that. And now, as you're flipping there, and as you're getting to this passage of the Bible, uh, let me just kind of start off by, by, by mentioning something. So when you, um, when you go through the New Testament, one of the things you'll notice, if you've ever done this before, if you've ever went through the New Testament of the Bible, one of the things that you'll notice is there are a number of uh, images and metaphors that are used to describe the people of God to describe what God's people are like, to describe how they interact with each other and how they interact with the world. A bunch of different metaphors and images that are used to help us understand what the church, what the people of God are like. So, for example, we actually looked at one of the metaphors just a couple weeks ago. The Bible says that the people of God are to be like the family of God, that we are God's family. What does that mean? Well, it's a metaphor, right? It's an image. And basically what it's saying is God's people are to interact with each other. They are to experience the community and, and the commitment of that of a family, right? And so we said that's a metaphor God uses to help us understand the way that those of us who follow Christ are to interact with each other and interact with the world. Here, here's another image. The Bible says that those of us who follow Jesus, we are the body of Christ, how many of you have heard that before? Maybe if you grew up around church, you've heard that. We're the body of Christ. Now, again, what is that talking about? It's an illustration. It's a metaphor that helps us understand the way that we are to interact with each other, for those of us who follow Christ, and the way that we're to interact with the world that we live in. Well, what we're going to see in Ephesians 2 is we're going to see yet another metaphor that's going to help us understand who we are and how we are to interact with each other and the world that we live in. All right, so let's take a look at it. Let's see if you can find it. It's going to be here. We're going to start off in verse 19, Ephesians chapter 2, starting off in verse 19. Here is what the passage says. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people, and you're also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay, so here we have, it's a pretty brief passage. But if you look into this passage, I think one of the things that you'll probably notice pretty quickly is that there is, a, there is an illustration, there is a metaphor that's being used here to describe what God's people are like. And if you notice, it says it in a lot of different ways. So take a look at it. I'll just kind of highlight some of, the, some of the key parts. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that for those of us who follow Christ, we are part of God's household. Some of your translations say that we are God's house. I might say that in your translation. Here it says that we are, uh, we are God's building is what this passage says. Here it says that we are becoming a holy temple that we are a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So do, do you notice, here's the image, here's the metaphor the Bible uses to describe the people of God. It says that we are God's building, that we are God's house, that we are God's temple, that we are a dwelling place in which God lives. And so the Bible uses this idea that we're a house, we're a building, we are a temple, that the people of God themselves the, the church itself is, is the people are the, the actual building. In other words, the church is not a building. The, the church is not a place. The church is a people. And God is building us together in this way. Now, this illustration might sound weird to you, but I'll tell you, you find it all throughout the Bible. Let me give you a couple other examples to show you what I'm talking about. In the book of 1 Peter, here's what Peter, uh, one of the disciples of Jesus, says. He says, as you come to him, talking about Jesus, the living stone who was rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like, now notice this, like living stones. Now, those of us who follow Jesus, the Bible would say you're like a living stone. And, and look at this, we are being built up together into a spiritual house. We are a holy priesthood. In other words, there's that same idea, uh, that if we're followers of Christ, we're living stones. God is taking us and he is building us together to become a building, to be a holy dwelling place, to become a temple, to become all, all the same kind of idea. I'll give you one other passage. This comes from 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, it says, for we are, we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. You are God's building. There it is again. You're God's building. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So here it is again. It's this idea. We're God's house. We're God's building. We're God's temple. We're living stones. God is taking us and building us to be something together that God wants us to be. You kind of see the same image. Now, now I think when we think about this idea that we're living, that for those of us who follow Christ, we are living stones and we are being built together into a building and a house and a temple, that idea, I think that might be kind of intriguing because uh, for some of us, we've probably never been compared to a house before. And if you have, it probably wasn't real endearing, right? That's the case. But yet the Bible says this is something that God wants to do with us, that God wants to take us collectively, not just individually, collectively bring us together and to make us into something that we are, we are the building of God. That the church is not a place, the church is a people, a people who are coming together that God is building up that he wants to do something with us and in us and through us, right? That's what we're kind of talking about together. So what I want to do is because this idea that we're God's building might be an intriguing one, and for some of us it might be a brand new concept, I thought what we'd do is just spend our time really thinking through it a little bit, right? If the, if the Bible says that the people of God are like the building, that the people of God are like the temple, then what does that mean? What, is that, what does that reveal to us about the way that we should interact with each other what does that reveal to us about the way that we should interact with God and with the world that we live in? And I guess here's another question. Why is this idea of being God's building uncomfortable? 
why does it require that we have to embrace something uncomfortable to experience this? So that's what I want to talk about. And, and for the, kind of for the sake of our conversation, if you're the kind of person who likes a roadmap, let me give you a roadmap of what I'm hoping to talk about today. Okay, so I think that when we talk about this idea of being God's building or God's house or God's temple, I think that it actually communicates three big ideas. And here's the big ideas that I want to talk through for the rest of our time. I think, I think it says something, if we are God's building, I think it says something about diversity. I think it says something about diversity. I think it speaks about diversity. I think secondly, I think if we are God's household, we're God's building, we're God's temple, it also says something about harmony. It says something about harmony. And then here's the last thing. I think that ultimately, this whole thing is about glory. The whole idea that we are God's building, we are God's temple, I think ultimately at the end of the day, it is about glory. That's really what it's about. Now, let's see if we can make sense of this. All right, so let's start at the top. Let's talk about this idea of diversity. Diversity. The Bible says that those who are God's people are his building, that we are his temple, that we are his house. What is that talking about? Well, I think one of the things it's talking about is it's talking about our diversity, that God's people are to be people who embrace and celebrate diversity among each other. Um, so I think in order for us to, to really understand the richness of the metaphor that's being used in this passage, part of that comes in understanding how they used to build things uh, in the first century in times of antiquity. So obviously back in this time, the way that they would build a building was very, very different the way that we would build buildings today. Um, the primary material that they would use to build back in this time was stone. And uh, the way that they would do that is they would oftentimes hand cut these giant stones from these rock quarries. So this is before the use of dynamite and explosives. This is before they had masonry saws that they could use. So these guys would have to go in and by hand, they would have to chisel these things out of stone quarries. Now, the stones that they used to build, by the way, these things were massive. Right? They, weren't, they weren't like small stones. These were huge, oftentimes larger than a man. Right? Several tons. These things weighed an enormous amount of weight. And I guess because uh, back in this time, because it was so labor intensive and it was so time consuming and so expensive that whenever they were making these stones, these people weren't all that interested in making them exactly the same size and shape. Right? They didn't want to waste materials, so they didn't care about, every, like in our, you know, in our modern day setting, when we build something, all the materials are uniform, right? All the blocks look the same. The cinder blocks are the same size. The bricks are the same size. They all look exactly the same. They fit together easier that way. This time, they weren't concerned about that. All the stones looked way different. They'd be different shapes, different sizes, different weights. And, and what it would require is it would require almost an artisan's touch to be able to piece these things together in such a way that they all fit to form something. And so I think, I think what he's talking about in this passage when he says that we're God's temple, in part, he's actually speaking about our diversity. In fact, I'll just show you a couple pictures. Um, this is actually a picture uh, in ancient Corinth, or this is, this is, this is the, in the ancient city of Corinth. This building was called the Bema, and it actually is pretty stereotypical of what buildings in the first century would have looked like. You can see it's kind of in rubble, it's kind of, uh, it's all rubble now, but you can kind of tell if you look at the stones, um, they, they have, they, there's different shapes. Some of them are taller, some of them are smaller, some are bigger, and, and, and they just weren't concerned about every stone being exactly the same measurement, right? And they would, like, like an artist, they would put these things together in like almost a mosaic to create this, 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 this bigger picture of what it was. Here's another uh, image. I thought this one was pretty cool. This is actually uh, the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. So the passage of the Bible we're reading right now is Ephesians. 
that was written to the people in Ephesus. And the people in Ephesus, most likely, when they read this passage, right, when they would have read where God's temple, where God's building, this is probably what they would have been thinking about. This is something they would have seen every day in their everyday life would be a temple like this. And you can tell here, if you can look closely, I don't know if you can tell up here or something, but these stones, they all have different sizes. They have different shapes, not uniform. And so, so here's the idea. When the Bible says we're the temple, part of what that's referring to is it's actually referring to our diversity. It, un- unlike Pink Floyd, right? We're just another brick in the wall. It's like what, what, when Pink Floyd says that, it's saying we're all the same. We're all cookie cutters, right? We're all the same. You know, it's just kind of like a factory. We're all generated. That's not what the Bible is saying when the Bible says that we are living stones in the temple. It's saying, no, we're all different. We're all very, very different. Now, here's the thing. What that means, I think part of what it means is that to embrace this idea of being God's temple requires that we have to be willing to embrace and celebrate diversity uh, within God's church. We have to be willing to do that. Now, here's the thing, right? Now, I know that when I say the word diversity in our cultural landscape right now, uh, that, is a, uh, that is a word that has a lot of baggage attached to it. Uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, it's a hot, you know, kind of a hot button topic. There's a lot of political baggage that comes with a term like diversity. But I want you to hear me say this, that when I'm talking about diversity, embracing diversity, I actually mean it in the purest sense of the word. And what do I mean by diversity? Well, all of us know what diversity, diversity in its purest form, what it really means is just anything different than you. And that could be a whole bunch of things. So that, does that include race? Absolutely, that includes race, absolutely. But it's not limited to just that. It's everything else too. It's a social economic background. It refers to, um, to, to different stages of life and ages. It refers to different personality styles, different interests. There's a whole bunch of different types of diversity. I think, and I think what this is saying is like if, we, if we're God's temple, if we're God's building, part of that means that there needs to be an eagerness and a willingness and a celebration among God's people that we embrace the fact that we are different and that we should celebrate that rather than resist that. That rather than trying to all become and try to make each other like one another, that we need to embrace that we are different and that this should be, well, the church should be a very eclectic place of a bunch of different people that really have no earthly reason of being together aside from the fact that they follow Jesus Christ. So let's give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. I think in our setting, one of the things that we really love and celebrate is that everyone comes from different church backgrounds. We have a bunch of people that go to our church that come from very different church backgrounds. So some of you, for example, some of you maybe grew up going to church. You were like a church kid, right? And so you grew up and your parents would get you out of bed and they would put you in clothes you didn't want to wear and they would cart you out to church and you would sit there and you would do that. And maybe for some of you, maybe for some of you, you were immersed in the church thing. Your parents would take you to like Awanas. You guys know what Awanas is, right? And you memorized Bible verses and you got like badges and sashes and all kinds of stuff when you did that. Some of you were, were just ingrained. Some of you, when I say things like Salty the Singing Songbook, you actually know what I'm talking about. Right? Some of you were born and raised on Veggie Tales, and you know what Adventures and Odyssey is. And, and some of you, you were so ingrained in church culture that whenever you wanted to freshen your breath, you popped in a testament. Like that was what you did because certs were from the devil, right? You had a shirt that looked like it said Reese's, but it actually said Jesus on it, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about, and that's how you grew up. And yet somehow within that background, you genuinely and authentically found Jesus, 
and you developed a real relationship with him and, and, and you have been following. Now listen, for some of us in this room, we don't come from a background like that. For some of you, when I say Salty, the singing songbook, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now, right? For some of us, we're like, I didn't grow up in that. Maybe your parents didn't drag you to church. Maybe your parents weren't even involved. And maybe for some of you, the only thing you really knew about Jesus was that you had this predisposition in your heart that his people were judgmental and hypocritical and you were repelled by the whole thing. And for some of us, we're new to this whole thing and Jesus has gotten a hold of your life and maybe you didn't grow up memorizing verses. Maybe you're just excited that we put the page number on the screen so that you can find the thing, right? And, and here's what we do. We love that and we celebrate that. We celebrate that there's a diversity of people that God is bringing together and so diversity shows up in a lot of different ways. It's social background, economic background, racial, all of those things, right? And those who are the people of God, what it means to be the building of God means that we embrace the diversity of God's people, that rather than resisting that, we actually celebrate it, we look for it, we encourage it, we love that, not the same, that God is different. But here's the second thing I think it reveals to us, and this is really important. I think it also reveals to us something about harmony, that yes, that if we're the building of God, it speaks something about diversity. It says something about that. But I think it also says something about harmony. This is really, really important. I want you to notice in the passage uh, what it says, back, to our, back in Ephesians 2. It says that we are, uh, we are uh, a living, you know, we're this household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. We'll talk about that here in a second. In him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together. It's being joined together. And it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are being built together, right? To become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. So what is this telling us? Here's what it's telling us, that yes, if we are the building of God, if we're living stones, that means that there's diversity among us, but, but what Christ wants to do is Christ wants to take those differences, Christ wants to take that diversity, and he wants to bring us in a harmony. He wants to join us together. He wants to do something with us. He wants to join us together. I, th- I actually think it's pretty interesting, the word join together that's used here, if you go back to the original Greek language, it is actually a word that literally means to bring something into joint harmony. That's actually what it literally means. In fact, the Greek word that's used here is actually where we get the English word harmony from. And in the Greek, the word harmony literally means joint. That's what it means. And not like this kind of joint. It's like this kind of joint, right? It's like a, you have two stones that are very different from one another, and yet they are brought into joint harmony in such a way that the strengths and weaknesses of one are completed and complemented by the strengths and the weakness of another. What is this telling us? Here's what it's telling us. God wants to take this eclectic group of diverse people and he wants to bring us into a place where there is harmony, right? In other words, here's the idea. The fact that the Bible says that God's trying to build us into something together, it means that we're not just a bunch of living stones that are being chucked into a pile, right? God wants to take us and he wants to harmonize us and he wants to build something out of us so that he can use us for his purpose, I just thought, maybe just think about this with me for a second. I know this is a pretty simple way to think, but I want you to think about just for a moment the difference between a pile of stones and a building of stones. Okay, so the Bible says God wants to take us and he wants to make us into a building. He wants to cause us to live in a place of harmony where, where, where his temple, where his building. So think about the difference, right? In a pile of stones, in a pile of stones, all of the stones essentially live in isolation from each other. Maybe a better word there would be they're separated, they're disjointed, right? 
in a pile of stones, there's just, there's just, you know, there's no rhyme or reason behind it. So here's a very complicated picture. In a pile of stones, right, if you think about it, there's no fixed specific relationship that any one stone has with another. Um, they're just jumbled together. And in a pile of stones, because they live in a state of alienation from each other where they don't really have any definitive relationship or they're not, there's no interlocking relationship with each other, if you were to remove one of the stones or if it was to go missing, you wouldn't even notice. You would hardly notice if a stone was gone. Why? Because there's just no, there's no organization behind it. However, if you think about the idea of a building of stones, well, every stone in a building is strategically put into a place where it lives in an interdependent relationship with the other stones, right? It's a, it, that yes, every stone is individually different and diverse, but yet they, they're in an interdependent relationship that is harmonious with the stones around it. So if you think about, again, a very complicated example here, if you think about a stone in this particular picture, here, there's an interdependent relationship that each stone has with those that are around it, right? They're connected, they're bearing weight, they are participating, each one of them, they are involved in helping finish a completed idea. They are all part of something bigger. And, and of course, in this picture, if you were to remove one of the stones, it would be immediately obvious if it wasn't there. You would absolutely notice the absence of a stone in a temple, in a building, right? And not only would you notice it, it also would compromise the integrity of the building structure itself if it was gone. Something would collapse. It wouldn't be what it was intended to be without it. Now, here's what I want you to think about. If that's what God is saying about us, for those of us who follow Jesus, if he says, this is what I want you to be, I want you to be like living stones that are being, not, not just a big pile, not jumbled in a pile, but I want you to be living stones that are being built up into something. What does that say about us? What does that say? Well, here, here's what I think it does. I think it forces us to ask some kind of uncomfortable questions, quite honestly. I think, for example, it forces us to ask, are we in an interrelated relationship with other people like we see in, in this idea of being a building? Like, are we, are we experiencing that? Are we, are we in relationships with others that are so tight-knit, that, that are so infused with each other, so harmonious that we are bearing weight, that we are relying on each other, that there is an interdependence? Is that happening, Right? In other words, do I have, am I involved in the lives of other believers in such a way where we're experiencing that? Is that happening? I think it's important because, you know, we talk about this all the time here at Grace. It is impossible for us to live the life that God wants us to live in alienation and isolation from each other. You think about every metaphor the Bible uses to describe the people of God. It is always this idea of community. Right? We are the family of God. We are the body of Christ. We are, we are the building. What is that all talking about? Saying, man, there is something about that type of interconnectedness and community that's essential to experiencing what it is that God desires for us. So we've got to ask the question, are we, are we in an interdependent relationship with others? You know, I think it's interesting. Whenever the Bible says that you're the temple of God or you're the building of God, did you know that? I thought this was really interesting. Every time it says that, it never says it. It always says it in the plural form. It's you all are. Together we, not, not, not just you individually, we together are God's building. We together are God's temple. It's referring to the fact that there's this interdependent relationship that we're to be in. Here's another uncomfortable question it forced us to ask. If I, if I was absent, if my, presence, if my presence was removed, would it be felt? Right? Would it be felt? If, if, if I was absent, would, would that not, not, I'm not just talking about attendance, I'm talking about, 
would would other would the relationships of other people would that would that would that would that absence in some way cause something to collapse? I think again, I think what it refers to, I think it's saying that God wants us to grow and he wants us to 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 really kind of be committed in one spot. I think part of what this uh, what this flies up against is this idea of jumping around from one thing to the next. You know, this idea of I'm gonna go to this church this time and this church another time and maybe here for a couple of years and never really grow deeply in any relationships with any people. I think that actually is harmful to our spiritual growth and to our spiritual health, right? And so, and so we have this idea, pile of stones live in isolation, building of stones, interdependence. Um, if you think about a pile of stones, it's all random. It's just jumbled together. There's no logic behind it, right? But if you think about a building of stones, each stone is intentionally placed specifically where it needs to go. Like a mosaic, like a beautiful mosaic, every stone is intentionally placed exactly where it needs to go. I thought this was interesting. I was studying, um, once again, the building process back in times of antiquity. They're talking about how um, part of the way they would do it is they would carve these massive stones from the quarry, and then they would transport the stones to the building site. And the way they would do that was with these logs. So they would roll these massive stones to the building site. And then once they had them all there, I thought this was really cool. There was this guy, they would call him like the master builder. I can't help but think of the Lego movie whenever I say that. But there, he'd be the master builder and his job, his job would be before they even started construction, he would go around and he would meticulously study each and every single stone. And he would look at it and he would measure it and he would consider it and he would look at it and then he would map out. He would basically draw out a blueprint and like a, like a puzzle, Right? He would piece this thing together. This stone goes here, this stone goes here, then it's this one, then it's this one, and these, and, and oftentimes they would get the stones where they needed to go and they would have to chisel them further so that they could fit together. And these guys, listen, these master builders were so good at this. They were so good at this um, that a lot of these building structures are still standing. Uh, these building structures, they use no mortar at all. And the joints are so tight, you can't even get a piece of paper through them. That's how good they were at this. Now, here's the point. If the Bible says that that's us, that we are God's temple, God's building, what that infers is that God is the master builder and that God is the one who is intentionally putting us where we are with who we are because he knows, because he's wise and because he is the one who is trying to build the thing that he's trying to build. Let me just ask you real quick. Who is the one who builds us? Who is the one who builds God's temple? Who is the one that builds God's house? It's God. God is the one. He is the master builder. And that's what the Bible is telling us here. God is intentionally putting us where we are with who we are because he's the one who's building it. And I think what this means is it means this. It means that we have to, in order to embrace this idea that we're God's building, we have to be willing to surrender our vision for what we think community should look like for what we think church should look like, we should be willing to surrender that to what God says he believes church should look like. He is the master builder. I thought this was a phenomenal quote. It comes from a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German theologian back in uh, World War II era. Here's what he said. This is, I thought this was really insightful. He said, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that dream or of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. It is not we who build, it is Christ who builds the church. Well, that was really insightful. You see what he says there? He says, we're not the ones who build the church. It's Christ that builds the church. 
And he says, quite honestly, you know what can be the thing that gets in our way from experiencing what it is that God truly wants to do among us? Sometimes it's our dream of what we think church ought to be. I thought that was really insightful because this is true. Sometimes what can get in our way is we can look and we can say, you know what? You know what I think the church should, I think the church ought to look like this. I think it ought to be like this. Here's my preferences. Here's my expectations. I think people need to act like this. You can imagine as a pastor, I get this conversation a lot. Right? I'll have people come up to me a lot and they'll say, you know, what, you know what's wrong with the church? You know, you know what's wrong with the church? And I'm always like, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. I'm just really excited about this conversation right now, you know, because I'm sure it's going to be really helpful. And, uh, and you know what's wrong with the church, Pastor? You know, uh, my favorite, you know what's wrong with your church, Pastor? Which I think is great. I don't actually have a church, right? This is Jesus' church, but that's cool. You know what's wrong with the church? Here's what it is. And usually it goes something, the conversation goes something like this. What's wrong with the church is that the people... People don't do the things I want them to do. And the things you guys do, they don't look like the preferences that I have. And you know what the church needs? needs and, and, and I think this Bonhoeffer, he nails it. Sometimes the thing that can actually kill the community that God is building is, is our ideal of what we think the community ought to be. And it prohibits us from actually loving and being involved with the people that God, the master builder, has placed in our lives right there in front of us. I think sometimes, like, you know what, I, I was part of that group, but I, I just didn't, I didn't connect with it. I think it look, needs to look more like this. Well, sometimes that's going to keep you from the very thing that God wants for you. God's the master builder. I think what this reveals to us, too, you guys, is that I think this is so important for those of us who follow Jesus. That if God is the master builder, that means that God is the one who determines the people that should be placed in my life. That God is the one who determines that. That I don't get to choose who is part of the church, who's not part of the church, who's in my life, who's not in my life, who's part of my group, who's not part of my group, right? And to be honest with you, if God is a master builder, oftentimes he chooses people that he puts in my life that honestly, I don't know if I would always choose for myself. I don't know, I'd always choose the people that God puts in my life. But if I believe that God is the master builder, what that means then is it means that God has placed this person next to me because he wants me to understand something about him and he wants me to, even though it might be an uncomfortable relationship for me, I need to press into this relationship because I believe that God is building us together into something for his glory and for his namesake, right? I think it forces us to ask some uncomfortable questions. Like, I think it makes us ask this question. Are there people that God has placed in my life, are there people that God has placed in your life that you resist, that you just like, you just... Uh, I don't, you know, person in your life group, person in our church, you're like, eh, I don't want to talk to them or be with them or it's hard for me. And for whatever reason, they're socially awkward or they, 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 you know, are different than I am or they're old and I'm young or they're young and I'm old or, or whatever it might be. They, they have bad breath, right? Don't, don't nudge anybody, right? But that, that, but there, what can happen sometimes is when we see that, when there's uncomfortable relationships that God has placed in our lives, a lot of times we resist them. And, and, we, we, and I'm just, I, I know this is true for me too. What I'll do a lot of times is I'll naturally, inst I instinctually want to be with people who I like and who are like me. That's just true. I, I naturally, instinctually want to be with people that I like to be with and that like me and are like me people who have the same interests, people who have a similar background, people who are in a whatever similar stage of life. But you see, part of what it means to be part of the building of God is it means that we have to lean into relationships that are sometimes uncomfortable 
Someone is economically different than I. Someone is socially different than I. Someone, is, someone comes from a, a, a totally different background, racially different than I am. We have to look at those things and say, you know what? Even though it's more comfortable for me to be with these relationships, I'm deliberately choosing to embrace the fact that God has placed these people in my life because he's trying to build. He's the master builder. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, man, it's a phenomenal book called Life Together. He's, I thought this was so powerful. He's talking about Christian community, about being in community. Here's what he said. God did not make this person, whoever it is that God has put in front of you, God did not make this person as I would have made him. He did not give him to me as a brother for me to dominate and control, but in order that I might find above him the creator. I love that statement. God, God didn't put this person in my life so that I could somehow retrofit him or her to what I desire them to be. God has put this person in my life because he's intended that somehow in them I would find above that person, the creator. In other words, this person is created in the image of God. And because they're created in the image of God, there's something that I can learn about God through this person and through their personality and through the diversity of what makes them different than me. It says this, he goes on, he says, now the other person and the freedom with which he was created becomes the occasion of joy. I can take joy in the fact that this person is way different than I am. Whereas before, he was only a nuisance and affliction, to be pretty honest. Beforehand, it used to annoy me. But now that I've surrendered to Jesus Christ and I see that you are created in the image of God, you're an occasion for joy. Uh, you're different than I am. Man, that's, uh, I can learn something about God through you that I couldn't learn otherwise, Right? God does not will that I should fashion the other person according to the image that seems good to me, that is in my own image. Rather, in his very freedom from me, God made this person in his image. He's the master builder. I'm trusting him. He's the one that puts the relationships. So what does it mean to be the building? Here's what it means. It means we have to be willing to embrace uncomfortable relationships. There are going to be times when we are with people that are just not like us and are different than us and are socially different than us and, are, and, and, and we don't connect with and, we're, and they're not going to connect with us. But, but what it means to be the people of God is that we have to persevere in the midst of those challenges because of something greater. And so the building of God, it refers to diversity, refers to harmony, but, and here's the final thing, and I think this is probably the most important of them all. I think it says something and ultimately it's about glory. It's ultimately about glory. Um, and here's what I mean by that, because that might sound interesting or intriguing to you. Here's what I mean by that. If right now we were just to end this message, so if I just said, okay, there, there's the message. The message is we're different. We're all diverse and different, and we should love each other and be unified and have harmony with each other. That's the end of the message. Let's pray and go home, and that's the end. Uh, first off, it would be a terrible message. And secondly, it would not be possible. It would be impossible. Like if I just said to you, the goal is diversity. That's the goal. We're going to be harmonized. We're going to be unified. We're all different. Let's, we all understand it's hard to be around people that are different than us, but let's do it anyway. That's it. Amen. Let's pray. Good luck. If we did that, it wouldn't work. You guys know it doesn't. It doesn't work. And here's why. Because we all know this. Diversity as a goal, when diversity is the goal, it never works. It never works. You get a group of people together who are different and you put them in a room and you say, here's the goal, get along. That's the goal. Over time, they're gonna kill each other. That's what's gonna happen. And all of us know that, right? Here's the point. The only way that you can have harmony within diversity is when there is something that it is centered around. There has to be something that is so glorious, 
There has to be something that is so elevated, something that is so beautiful, something that is so wonderful that as a result of centering around that thing, harmony and diversity happens. It's the only way it happens. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. So I grew up in Akron, uh, lived in Akron most of my life. I lived in Chicago for a little while, but for the most part, for the past, uh, with the exception of the past few years, I've been, I've been in Akron most of my life. And uh, you know what's interesting? I noticed something in Akron, and I don't know if that, this is true around here or not, but I noticed something in Akron. I actually was thinking about this past week. You know what the most diverse place in Akron was? The place where you would see the most diverse backgrounds imaginable. Do you know where it was? I was thinking about it. I actually thought, I figured out. In my experience, I found the most diverse place in Akron is Krispy Kreme Donuts. It is. It's the most diverse place in Akron. Out of curiosity, how many of you have ever been to the Krispy Kreme store? And I don't mean like got a Krispy Kreme donut at a gas station. That's not the same. At the store. Show them high. Proud, right? So, okay, you guys have been to the Holy Land. That's a wonderful thing. You guys have all been, seen, seen the glory, right? Of, it, if you've never been to a Krispy Kreme store, it's amazing. You, actually get to wa- you get to watch them make the donuts right there, and they're like on a conveyor belt, and there's this one part. It's amazing. They actually go through a waterfall of, of frosting. It is a waterfall of, of frosting, and it's, that's where the donuts get baptized by the Holy Spirit is in that <laughs> process. They're amazing. They're delicious. But if you've ever been to a Krispy Kreme store, you might know that there's a sign outside of every Krispy Kreme store. There's a sign. You guys ever seen this before? It is this sign right here. Hot now. Hot now. How many of you know the hot now thing? How many of you guys? Okay. Now, here's the thing. When this sign goes on, when this sign illuminates, this is like the bat signal <laughs> to like all manner of gluttony. All right? It's amazing. When this thing goes on, here's what that means. It means they are baking up some Krispy Kreme donuts right now. Like, and they are hot now. And if you come in that store when the hot now sign is on, you get a free Krispy Kreme donut right off the conveyor belt. I mean, they just give you one. It's amazing. And, and if you've ever had a fresh, hot Krispy Kreme donut, you know you don't even have to chew it. You put it in your mouth and it just dissolves into bliss, right? That's just what it does. It's a beautiful thing. But here's what I've noticed, and my wife and I have noticed this. When this light comes on, all right, this place becomes the most diverse place in the world. And so my wife and I, we see this, we'll be driving down the road back when we lived in Akron, we would see this sign go on, it didn't matter what was happening, we were stopping right now, right? One time I was on my way to a wedding that I, w- that I was officiating, and I was like, we gotta go. It's, it's hot now, the wedding's, the wedding's later, hot now, right, we gotta go. And so we, we got in and got our Krispy Kreme. But when you go into this place, it is the most diverse place I've ever seen. So we pull into the parking lot, and the parking lot is jam-packed in Akron, and do you know what's in the parking lot? Lexuses, BMWs, 35-year-old rusted-out Chevys, bicycles, like any, anything. You walk into the store, guess what you see? The most diverse scene you've ever seen. Old and young, 85-year-old woman standing next to a 13-year-old kid with piercings and a skateboard. You see, you see uh, rich and poor. You see businessmen. You see athletes. You see artists. You see all types of different ethnicities all represented. And for this one brief period of time when this light is on, there is such incredible harmony in that diversity. This group of people who have no earthly reason to ever be together are high-fiving each other are smiling, are celebrating. Why? Because of the glory, the glory of the free Krispy Kreme donuts. And for that one moment, it all melts away because there's something so wonderful and something so glorious and something so beautiful. And now here's all I'm saying, right? 
I'm just saying that in this passage, the Bible says that this is, this is the building of God. That yes, God wants to take that diversity and he wants to bring harmony, but the only way that's possible is because of something so beautiful that it's centered around. That's why it says this. It says that the whole thing is centered around Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. Everything is centered around the cornerstone. Now, some of you know, uh, back in, in, in the times when they used to build, back, they didn't have laser levels. So the way they would build a building is they would actually cut out a cornerstone. The cornerstone had to be the most meticulously uh, carved, perfect in its angle stone because everything was built off of the cornerstone. Everything was built in a line to this one stone. It was the cornerstone. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, man, when Jesus is the cornerstone, when, Jesus is, when, the, when the message and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes the thing that you begin to align your life with, he says that what happens is it causes you to live in harmony with God, but it also causes you to live in harmony with each other. That it brings, that this beautiful thing, the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, which if you've never heard the gospel, here's the gospel in a nutshell. It's the most beautiful message. It's this message. You are more messed up than you think you are. And I am more messed up than I think I am. But you're more accepted than you could ever imagine. Because God and his love has sent Christ to you. And that is the message of the gospel, that you are a son and a daughter of God if you embrace Christ. And the Bible says that when we start to center ourselves on something so beautiful and something so majestic, and when we begin to elevate that above all else, and we start to align our lives to what Christ says about us and what Christ says about others, that is going to bring all of this diversity into harmony because of something glorious. And as a result of that, as a result of that, the Bible says something amazing. The Bible says that we will then become a holy temple and God's, God's spirit will dwell among us. Here's what I think is interesting. The Bible says when this happens, when this begins to happen, the Bible says that God's glory begins to dwell among us in a very powerful way. And in a very palpable way, people are drawn to this. Like in the, in the you guys might remember this, back in this setting, a temple a temple was symbolic of the presence and access to God. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that when we come together this way, it is so compelling to an onlooking world because they can gain access to and experience the presence of God. Why is that? Well, it's because we are all drawn to something that is elevated in such a way that it brings unity out of diversity, right? If I, if I was to tell you, if I was to say, hey, you like music? He said, yeah. I said, there's this really great song you gotta listen to. Every 11 to 13-year-old white girl loves it. You probably, would be, probably wouldn't want to listen to it, right? But if I said there is a song that every tongue and every tribe and every nation is singing, it's a song that everybody loves, you'd be compelled to listen to it. Why? Because there's something compelling about something that is so elevated that it brings unity and it brings harmony out of diversity. And the Bible says that's what the building of God is to look like. And when that happens, the more and more that happens, the presence of God will be felt. I'm going to end with this. Van's going to come up. I'm going to end with this quote. I thought this was really powerful. This comes from Charles Spurgeon. He was a, a preacher in the 18th century, and I thought what he said was just really strong. Look at this. He said this. He said, give yourself to the church. He says, you that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had ever joined a church, if I, I'm sorry, if I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been perfect, a perfect church anymore after I had become part of it. Remember, it's true. It says this, still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. 
Church is not an institution for perfect people. It's a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they are saved are still sinners, and they need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. It's a powerful quote. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you that you that you want to take such incredible diversity and that you desire to bring it into a place of harmony that's all centered in your glory. And, and God, there is nothing more precious than um, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what you've done for us. And God, as we come to that and we allow that to, to transform the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about others, as we align ourselves to the cornerstone, as we allow you to define and direct our lives, God, we know that leads to transformation. And the transformation that you desire for us is that we would, Lord, that we, a very strange, eclectic group of people, would suddenly find that we are united because of something so amazing and wonderful and glorious. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to be a people that don't run from diversity, that don't resist diversity, but that we embrace it and we celebrate it and that you would bring harmony out of it and that we would see, Father, that it ultimately is for your glory and because of your glory. And so God, I ask you that even as we go from this place, Jesus, help us to be blessed for having heard what we heard. I pray that we'd be changed, Lord. Help us to live differently as a result of it. And we just ask these things in Jesus' name.